Welcome to Eye to Eye, the podcast of the Royal College of Ophthalmologists. My name is Sunil Mamtora, and I will be your host. Today, I'm speaking with Guy Hunter, an ophthalmologist in training, but a special kind of training. Guy is a military ophthalmologist and is going to be talking to us about his experience of training in ophthalmology whilst balancing a career in the military. Guy, thank you so much for joining me to talk about all your experiences. Absolute pleasure, Sunil. Thank you very much for having me. You know, my first question really is, what made you choose to go down the specific path of going into a career in the military whilst training as an ophthalmologist? Well, to be honest, the decision to join the military came first. Um, I'd always been intending to join the military. Um, I'd When I came into medical school, I joined a uh, territorial army unit uh, which still confuses some people because I have an old school other ranks army number um, instead of a navy officers service number when they look at my ID card but um, I then through the course of my medical studies I elected to join the navy as an officer cadet and got a a medical cadetship which meant that they paid my fees and paid me a salary through the final three years of medical school and then uh, I was fully in the military, essentially, even as a medical student, uh, with a promise of a return of service to them once I qualified as a doctor. Um, I suppose I'd always I'd always been fascinated by, you know, by the military history and was had always been keen to join up even when I was little. Though when I was very small, I, I actually wanted to be a fighter pilot, but as a uh, as a quite well, moderate myope, that was never going to be on the cards, unfortunately. Um, I have had refractive surgery since, and it would be fine now if I were 20 again for me to join, but at the time the regulations wouldn't have allowed it um, post-refractive correction. So, well, here I am as a doctor, so say la vie. Is there anything that scares you or puts you off a career in the military? It sounds like you're quite fearless in, in that sense. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't say that. Um you you've got to be you've got to be all right with the job and the job isn't just policy or just seeing people at home you've got to be okay with going out and doing the job for real on operations um whether that's you're in the air force doing aeromedical evacuations if you're in the navy going to sea on a ship or a submarine or sitting in a trench with some raw marines or with the army doing land operations uh, we're all part of a bigger team with a mission and if you're not okay with going out and doing the job on the ground it's probably not for you uh, but it, it the you do tend to self-select the right sort of people and the, the military's fairly good at um, keeping the keeping the ones who uh, who are ready for it essentially mm. you know when you said about your time in medical school and being paid a mm. salary for the latter years of your time in medical school. That sounds like a really good deal. You know, why did you choose the Navy specifically rather than you know, going into the Army or the Air Force? <laughs> Nicer uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, I think it was, it was mainly because the Royal Navy offers the opportunity uh, to do the full spectrum of military practice. So we have the fleet air arm, which now includes fast jets again, finally. Um, so you can do fixed or rotary wing aviation medicine. You can go on a surface ship. You can do subsurface with our um, Navy divers or on submarines. And we also have a 
land fighting component in the world's greatest light infantry with the Royal Marines and amphibious warfare specialists. So you really can get the whole gamut of military medicine uh, in the Royal Navy, which isn't something that the other two services offer, although clearly they have their strengths as well. You talked about the armed forces being quite self-selecting and getting the right people with the right type of mindset. Do you think that serving in the Navy and your time with the organisation has changed you or given you some life skills that are applicable to your life or to your career in medicine? Oh, absolutely. 100%. So the the one thing that you learn relatively early on in your medical career as an armed forces doctor is leadership, responsibility, management, and a great deal of self-reliance, um, especially well, I can only speak for the Navy, but if you're if you're at sea, you're the only doctor that's out there. And I should say that the the time that I spent at sea doing my general duties medical jobs was prior to me becoming an ophthalmology trainee. So um, if you do F1 and F2 in the military, you then get taken out of the NHS. If you're in the army or the Navy, you get taken out of the NHS out of training for three years. They put you through initial officer training and then, in the Navy's case, send you to sea for about two and a half years. And it's at this point that you could quite reasonably be the only doctor on a ship or a submarine dealing with whatever comes at you. You're also responsible for being a leader, uh, leading your team of uh, medical assistants on board, training your first aid parties of stewards and chefs, who are your eyes and ears during a mass casualty event and looking after casualties for you. Whereas as the doctor, you're actually going to be doing triage most of the time if there's a lot of casualties in a war fighting situation. So you're responsible for that department, getting getting the ship to sea, getting the crew to sea. And that's effectively millions of pounds worth of kit and men that you're contributing to a greater operational effort. It can be a bit jarring coming back to NHS practice. I know I, I struggled as an ST1, having come from my time on submarines and effectively being in charge to then uh, being treated as the lowly ST1 who clearly knows nothing. And uh, that required a bit of attitude adjustment from me, but also from my seniors in the unit I was working in at the time as well. Uh, we, we came to an understanding, though, <laughs> uh, I think... Uh, we met, we met somewhere in the middle. So you decided that you wanted to pursue a career in military medicine relatively early on in your medical career, you know, during medical school. How did the decision or how did it work out that you ended up in ophthalmology? Again, interesting. So um, I, I'll be completely honest. I don't think I've actually ever told anyone this. It's a little bit embarrassing to being on the Royal College podcast and saying this is that I... Um, I ended up choosing ophthalmology because I hate doing interviews and ophthalmology's run through. <laughs> so ge genuinely though, um, as an F2 in the military, you're obligated to do A&E and GP and one other thing. And as a military F1, I was thinking a lot about what would appeal, what I'd like to do long term. And I had a look and I thought, right, well, I know lots and lots of people going into surgical training. I've always been surgically minded. Um, and I thought, well, I, I, def I definitely want to do something with a strong surgical component. Fine. 
but I hear about people failing to get jobs because there's a bottleneck at the registrar point and I, I've, I've never been a big fan of academic writing or things like that. Publish or perish has been utterly anathema to me. So I thought, well, let's have a look. Let's see what I can do, run through. Then I know if I'm, if I'm in, I'm in all the way through for the long haul. And ophthalmology popped up. And I thought, well, you know what? That's, that actually sounds really interesting with the, the microsurgical elements. And it was almost like a chance for a fresh start because I, I end up doing a lot of work with primary care or um, non-ophthalmologists when it comes to dealing with ophthalmology because I'm writing doctrine and supporting the training of military GPs or military junior doctors or medical assistants who are on board ships and submarines and teaching them about eyes. And it, it really brings it home to you that a lot of doctors who aren't ophthalmologists really know very little about eyes. And they, that's not their fault. They, they, they've had three days or even a couple of weeks if they're really lucky at medical school and never used it ever since. And so almost a chance for a fresh start by entering ophthalmology training where almost no prior knowledge is assumed and just a chance to uh, start with a clean slate almost. So interesting surgical specialty. And I got to, I was very lucky, uh, training in Birmingham. I requested to be allowed to do ophthalmology for my F2 rotation, for my spare rotation, having done GP and A&E as well as um, ophthalmology. And I loved it. I had four months at BMEC, really fit into it. I had some wonderful supervisors there and I guess I just fell in love mm. with it. What happened afterwards was interesting because at the time um, it was seen as unlikely that there would actually be a military ophthalmology training post because the way that military selection for jobs works is that every year each of the individual services will publish a requirement for how many trainees they need in whatever specialty. And you then go through the same specialist interview training process as everyone else, but you're competing against the other military trainees for those slots. So say if they say they want three orthopedic surgeons and eight people apply for orthopedic surgery, the top three military trainees who benchmark for orthopedics will get the jobs and the other five won't, even if they would have gotten jobs elsewhere in the NHS. So you're competing against that group of military doctors. Um, clearly, the other thing with that system is if you didn't benchmark and wouldn't have gotten a job in the NHS, they won't give you a military one either. So you, you have to meet the minimum mm, standard okay. and then beat the other military trainees. I see. But yeah, I, I got in and there was one and I got it. And well, here I am. That's amazing. So that was actually going to be my next question. How does the recruitment and applications work? And you've pretty much answered that there in terms of minimal minimal appointable scores going through national recruitment but then competing with your fellow military doctors um, rather than the rest of the cohort so you mentioned earlier that you might be the only doctor say on a ship or while serving does that mean that you know compared to say our colleagues who may have potentially limited medical experience in terms of treating non-ophthalmological conditions that you're much more confident or rather competent at managing diseases affecting the whole body rather than just the eye well it's been a little bit it's been a little while now i, I wouldn't say that that's probably the case anymore but certainly when i uh, when i first came into ophthalmology as an st1 i i'd 
was relatively clinically independent. Now, that may just have been me at the peak of the Dunning-Kruger curve, but uh, I'd, I'd had a lot of time and a lot of responsibility and a lot of independence. Um, it's me, me personally, I spent virtually all of my three years of general duties jobs attached to the submarine service. And the difference with the submarine service is that you don't transmit. Um, if we transmit to ask questions or seek clinical guidance from above, then the enemy could find us. That gives your position away. So once you're dived, you're gone. And whatever the medical problem is, you're probably going to have to sort it out by yourself. Um, unless you're going to then have to have a discussion with the captain about whether or not the casualty situation is so bad that you might have to abandon the mission. And in some cases, it's up to the captain. He may say the mission's more important. And that's where, where it comes down to being part of a team and also not just a good leader, but a good follower. And that I think actually that's probably one of the greatest skills I learned from the military is as well as all the, you know, all the warry stuff like being this wonderful leader, being really organized and being a good manager, but being able to take orders, support a leader, be a good follower is a really underrated skill. And I think that's that's something that the military's taught me very well as well. Yeah, no, I can imagine. You look, you know, you've mentioned going on the submarine and I've got a hundred questions in my head that I want to ask you about. And I'm sure that you're going to not be able to answer many of them and that's completely fine, but I'm going to try anyway. You mentioned the potential for having to discuss a case with the captain and questioning whether or not you might need to surface the submarine because an injury was so severe. Did that ever happen? I can't discuss details of submarine operations. Okay. And, you know, in the eye clinic, we're so used to all of the equipment we need, slit lamp, OCT, fundus cameras, biometry, visual fields, you name it. How many slit lamps are there on a submarine? <laughs> I, I had a direct ophthalmoscope that <laughs> occasionally worked and didn't have a blue light. <laughs> okay. Wow. So that's that's really interesting, isn't it? It's just the level of provisions. But do you, would you say that generally, you know, most of the equipment that you did need was available to you? I you know, I can't even imagine how small the medical officer's uh, cabin might have been where, you know, crew members might have come to see you. Look, my experience of what a submarine's like is purely based on watching Vigil on BBC One. <laughs> Please don't take that as a realistic depiction of the submarine service. Um, I'd say, well, the sick bay, if you stood in the middle with your arms out like you were doing a star jump, you could almost touch both walls either side. Oh, okay. Um, there's not a lot of kit. Now, when when you say, have you got the kit that you want... It's a bit of a subjective question, I suppose, because the interesting thing about it, and this applies so much to all kinds of expedition medicine, any anywhere where you're operating in austere environments with limited resources, the books stop being terribly useful. Because if you have someone with an abdominal problem and the book says, do some bloods, no, get a CT scan, no, get an ultrasound, no get some imaging at all. No, you've got your bare hands, a stethoscope and a three lead monitor. And it just comes down to 
good old-fashioned clinical acumen and treating for the worst case scenario you've you've really just got to do your best and as a as a junior doctor who's not massively individually experienced that's that's very challenging and sometimes quite scary but it does mean that you come out the other end of it relatively toughened and pretty happy to deal with most things certainly give it a go do sensible things with sensible drugs and see what you can do to help um yeah mm. so I, I certainly became a much more independent clinician following my time at sea yeah no, that was going to be my, my next question would be you know, once you return to clinical training in ophthalmology having been on a submarine dealing with a whole host of well i guess all sorts of clinical presentations did you find that that changed your attitude to risk um i was certainly I don't want to say I took risks. I don't think I did anything dangerous. I think I had a healthy attitude to risk, whereas a lot of the people I was working with or a lot of my junior colleagues that started with me had a much more conservative attitude towards taking risks. There was certainly a lot of um, seeking help, a lot of, oh, well, I'm not sure we should do that because X, Y, Z, it's like, well have to try something a patient's not going to get better unless you treat them we can try something and see i was i was a lot happier to you know take the lead almost um and yeah it you you, you learn to temper that as well because you have to adapt to the working culture that you're in and it, it took me it took me a little while to shake off the i'm a submariner Mm. I'm in charge kind of mindset and yeah. fit back into the NHS working paradigm, which is extremely different and yeah. very good in its own way. It's just very different. <laughs> and yeah, it was a, it was a culture shock. Uh, absolutely, absolutely a culture shock um, coming back in, into the NHS working environment after being at sea. Now I can imagine that they are very, very, very different. How long did you spend on the submarine at any one time? Um several months at a time so i i did i worked on a few different types of submarines doing different things but i certainly never had a patrol that was shorter than three months and that's not including the workup beforehand well do you mind me asking how did that affect your mental health you know spending at least three months at a time presumably without any natural light in a relatively enclosed environment, away from your family, how did you find that? I, the, the interesting thing—I mean, people ask me this a lot. Um, oh, I don't. They say I don't think I could manage it, and I say, well, you probably could, because I—I—I I, I, I may, I may be completely wrong. But my personal impression of being on on a submarine was that ten percent of people absolutely couldn't deal with it. And those people left fairly quickly early on. Um, 80% of people learned to live with it and got on with it. And 10% of people just loved it straight away uh, from the first time they put their boots on the ladder and just took to it like a fish to water. I, I think I enjoyed it more than most people did. Uh, I think it was harder on my family with me being away than it was for me to actually be at sea because I was extremely busy 
the whole time, not busy being a doctor um, because there's no space for passengers on board. Your crew's relatively young. People aren't sick all the time. So I had other things that I was doing on board um, that kept me extremely busy just with the day-to-day running of the submarine and the, and the operational side of things that I was contributing to, not as a doctor, but as mm. as an officer, as a crew member. And when you're doing six hours on, six hours off for months on end, you're kind of too tired to really feel sorry for yourself. <laughs> you just yeah. get as much sleep as you can, get up, eat, and go back on watch. Oh. And that, that was my life. And that, I, I loved it. Mm. It was great. Speaking of eating, what was the food like on the submarine? <laughs> you, uh, you run out of fresh food after about a week or so. So no salad, nothing like that after that. And then you're on tins and frozen for a few months. But the chefs do an absolutely outstanding job. Um, I've, I think I've, I've never really eaten better in the armed forces, and that includes the outside contract caterers that are in shore bases. The Navy chefs managing to feed you know, 180 guys from this tiny little galley with four of them in there, making four meals a day for everyone on board, just using, you know, potatoes and tinned food and frozen food. Yeah. It was, abs- it was absolutely amazing. But food is such an important part of morale when you're out there. Um, and if, if, if you have a bad meal, you can really tell. Mm. Uh, but that was extremely rare. They, they did an incredible job. So, yeah, actually, the food was pretty good. There's lots of guys that end up putting weight on oh. uh, because the, there ends up being quite extended times where you can't necessarily exercise because you're mm. in, running on quite, in a quiet state. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's quite easy to get get a bit get a bit tubby while you're at sea. The food's that good. It's fascinating. So you, you you've you've talked about how you've taken time out of your training. You spent months at a time on the submarine or on other um, missions or placements within the military. How does that affect the length or duration of your training? Are you by definition say a less than full time trainee? And how long will it take you overall? To become an ophthalmologist so at the time i wasn't in training i was just out of i wasn't a trainee i was out of training so after f2 they take you out and you go to see and then after about two years the next round of specialist um, interviews comes up you put your name in and you go for it and then you'll go slot back in as an st1 having been out of training for three years ah, okay. then so uh, I'm, I'm a fair. Well, I'm I'm a few years older yeah. than most most senior registrars are, just because I took three years out of the off the treadmill, out of the pipeline, um, before I became an ophthalmology trainee. Mm. But right now I'm I'm uh, I'm out of training again <laughs> because I'm doing the diploma in uh, aviation and space medicine at King's College London. Wow. Okay, I uh, got exams coming up. Uh, to the start of March, but really, really enjoying that too. And that's that's a military thing as well. They're uh, they're keen to have an ophthalmologist who's aviation and space medicine trained in order to help write the doctrine and look after all of the uh, all of the aircrew for the military. Wow! So you'll know all the guidelines about the impact of refractive surgery and its consequences on being able to be a fighter pilot. Then. Well, I, I may even have written some of them. So. <laughs> really? 
you mentioned before that the deal is essentially that you go through military tr specialty training and then you're committed to working in the military after you finish your training. So what are your future career plans? The way that it works is that your initial return of service, if if I recall correctly, if you have your cadetship going through your last three years at medical school with your salary and your fees paid for for those years, they then want seven year return of service from when you are fully registered. So the clock starts ticking at F1. And then so you have a year of F1, three years of general duties, and then three years of specialty training. So you'll notice that dovetails quite nicely with where a lot of specialties have their sort of registrar's bottleneck at the transition at S ST3. Um, and so if you don't get if you don't get a specialist job uh, with the military or you decide you want to leave at that point, that's quite a neat career break there where you can say, that's fine, I'll apply for a civilian training number and just leave, and I've paid my dues, I've put my time in it, and they let you go. If you then want to continue in the military, you then have to have your commitment extended, which is what's happened in my case, and then my commitment is essentially to give them three years as a consultant, and then it gets reviewed again. And it may then transition to a full career commitment. And, you know, it's it's mutual. I'm, I'm kept in on my return of service until the time runs out. And then I decide if I want to stay in and they decide if they want to keep me. And if both of us agree, I stay in. Hmm. Am I allowed to ask, what's the salary of a military consultant ophthalmologist compared to a conventional NHS consultant ophthalmologist. I believe that information is publicly available. And again, I wouldn't want to uh, go quoting figures in case I'm wrong. It's not, it's not that different. It is more okay. um, because more, with no, no offence to my civilian colleagues, more is expected of us. Um, if we were paid exactly the same as our civilian colleagues, then there'd be probably very few people volunteering to be in the military because of the extra well, military time commitment that I need to do, working on doctrine, working on the guidelines, uh, giving advice out of hours to deployed personnel and all the other stuff that comes along doing military clinics, it co comes along with being a defence job and the liability for deployment. Mm, um, of course, our, our civilian colleagues don't have that. Uh, but you could be called way, up any time. Yeah, well, the, the the way the way that the funding works is interesting. So, for military consultants, a a large proportion of your salary will be paid by your host trust, um, but it's then topped up by defence. So, essentially, the NHS gets a doctor on the cheap, with the caveat that they may then have to be deployed. But in the case of ophthalmologists, that's relatively rare currently. So, you know, I think I think everyone gets a good deal out of it. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier something that we all know as ophthalmologists, and that's that non-ophthalmologists often have limited confidence or expertise in ophthalmology. And as I completely agree with you, it is completely understandable given the state of undergraduate training in ophthalmology and beyond. So how does ophthalmology work when 
you're giving advice to you know, non-ophthalmologists who may mm. be deployed overseas. Sure. And what tools do they have at their disposal then if they don't have slit lamps or mm. other specialist equipment? So it depends what sort of facility they're operating from and where they are. Uh, at the moment, we have a secure uh, medical approved, Caldecott approved messaging app called Pando, uh, which is in use by all of UK defence. All different specialties that defence has have a group on Pando that deployed medical officers, not people in uh, in the UK or in firm based locations that just need to make a referral, but people who are deployed on operations can use for reach back. Uh, it has the ability to send text and images, not movies, unfortunately, but still images. And that can reach us any time of day or night. And we can then take the data that we're given there. We can ask questions back and give advice essentially over an instant messaging app to say whether we think the patient needs to be evacuated for further evaluation or give some options for treatment and support our forward deployed primary care doctors and emergency care doctors to let them deal with eye problems and hopefully not have to medevac people unnecessarily because that costs a lot of money and is a big waste of resources if it's something relatively simple that could have been managed in situ. In terms of equipment, uh, what most people are still deploying with is essentially a decent quality direct ophthalmoscope. Uh, they may have access to some drops, they may not, and a basic armamentarium of different eye drops. Uh, it depends where they are and what they're doing. Now, there are some locations we're on operations we've currently got are uh, contributing to the NATO battle group that's in Estonia, which is a first world European country with excellent hospitals and are uh, units with OCT scanners and fully trained ophthalmologists and slip lamps. So if we get a call from someone there who's got a, an eye problem, it's not unreasonable to say, well, take them to the local hospital, get them to do, get them to do an OCT, get them to do a, a dilated exam, get them to write, print out the report and send it back to us. And we can do that. If you're in the middle of the desert in Mali, that's not on the cards and you're just going to have to uh, use your best judgment. And that's where the threshold for evacuation can be quite flexible. You just have to deal with the information that you've got. What is interesting, what we're doing right now is we are trialing a few different imaging devices that are designed to clip onto a mobile phone and use the phone's camera to take images either of the anterior segment or of the posterior segment. So uh, three devices we're trialing. Uh, one called the Quick View, which is a little lens that just slips over the camera. It's got a couple of bright LEDs and a blue light in it, and that's used just for imaging the anterior segment. Uh, I've bought a Choroider, which uh, the Choroider Pro, which has an inbuilt LED and a 22 diopter lens on a 3D printed arm. Uh, it's about six inches long away from your phone camera and you can use it like an indirect essentially just mounted onto your phone and it lets you get really quite good images in a dilated eye. Um, we've had some good results with primary care and emergency medicine doctors 
just having been given a sort of 10 second brief on how to use it, how to hold it, how to use your pinky finger to brace against the patient's forehead. And then by using the, uh, the video capture on their phone. So even if they get, you know, just that one second flash of a good view of the macula and the disc, they've got it on video and you can just scroll back through and screenshot it and get a decent still image just from that sort of one second where you manage to get a good view at the back of the eye. Um, the other device we're trialling is a really interesting one. Uh, it's made in Scotland called the Arclight uh, from St Andrews, which is specifically designed for austere and remote uh, operations. It's extremely robust, can be solar charged, uh, and that works as a direct ophthalmoscope and can clip onto your phone. Also has the benefit of being able to be used as an otoscope as well. So the uh, the military may be interested in that from its sort of dual functionality point of view as well. Uh, we've been doing some feasibility trials with uh, all these different what we call role one doctors. So people who'd be forward deployed either in primary care or emergency care roles to see if they can get on with these devices, if it's easy for them to get good quality pictures of the front and of the back of the eye and if they think it will be a useful thing. And I'll, I'll be honest, the response has been almost universally positive because turns out using an indirect ophthalmoscope is extremely hard. But when you make it into a 3D printed device that's basically like trying to take a picture on your phone, it becomes a lot more intuitive for people. And they all recognize the real clinical benefit that can be gained by being able to send good quality images uh, back to an assessing ophthalmologist who may not even be on the same continent, but can give you decent advice or at least coach you on the sort of image that we need in order to be able to make a judgment. I even managed to uh, spend some time at the uh, Defence Animal Training Centre at Melton Mowbray and trial these devices on uh, dogs and horses. Turns out it works on them too, so the vets are interested as well. You know, talk about force multiplier, right? That's amazing. Incredibly innovative and maybe something that we can actually learn from in our own interface between primary and secondary care outside of the military. Mm. It, it would be really nice, wouldn't it, if um, your uh, referral to eye casualty didn't just come with, oh, the patient's got an eye problem and could have some, some nice, some nice high quality, high resolution images of uh, either of the anterior segment or of the back of their eye, even if it's just a, a little direct ophthalmoscope attachment that's put onto their phone and they've managed to get a photo yeah. and they can show you what they're worried about. And I, I think I think that would be that would be great. And the brilliant thing is they're not actually that expensive, it turns out. Yeah. Um, and it's so, not I just don't think it's that inconceivable to imagine that. No. No, and we're all about interconnectivity and God knows we need to do as much as we can to support our um, general practice colleagues at the moment and at the, at the same time protecting the limited resources of the eye department as well. And th this just seems like such yeah. such an easy win. Um, and well, we've, yeah. we've written up our findings so far into an abstract and I'll be uh, submitting that to a conference in a few weeks time and we'll see what happens from that but we're hopefully going to be conducting some more formal trials and uh, writing a uh, feasibility study to see if the military would like to take up any of these devices or if they think there's anything that we could do better with them but i i'm really excited about this and i think that for all of us we're going to have to become more comfortable with teleophthalmology as a concept as we become sort of better connected but 
in a way more centralized and perhaps more remote uh, from our civilian colleagues. And as as a quick, easy force multiplier, it's such an easy win to be able to just get an image and say, no, that's an abrasion. That's not an ulcer. Mm. It's fine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing that I'm just so impressed with is you know, the cost, but also the ease of use. It just transforms that interface between the referrer and the recipient of the referral. Yeah, absolutely. It turns out that uh, the vast majority of doctors have taken lots of pictures on their mobile phones before. And the designers of these devices have tried to make it as user-friendly and as similar to just tapping a photo on your telephone, just like you would to take a selfie. Um, interestingly, with the uh, with the choroida, with the indirect ophthalmoscope attachment, I um, put mounted it backwards on my phone and used the selfie camera just to see if I could take an image of my own eye that I dilated. And uh, yeah, it turns out with a little bit of little bit of practice, you can actually image yourself with it if you need to. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, you definitely need to show me some of those pictures. Mm, I've right. got the videos. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> You know, Guy, that's been an incredibly insightful uh, time learning about life on a submarine and all the other things that you've talked about. I really wish that I could ask you more questions, especially the ones that you can't answer. But, you know, thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome, Sunil. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on.